Let's open God's Word this evening to Matthew chapter 22. We will read the first 14 verses, the parable of the wedding banquet and the call to that banquet. We do so in connection with the latter parts of Lord's Day 30. Matthew chapter 22, let's read the first 14 verses. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, How camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far we read God's word this evening. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30, specifically question and answers 81 and 82. We considered question and answer 80 in our treatment of Lord's Day 29, and now we consider the second and third questions and answers of this Lord's Day. Question 81, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites, and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to the supper who by confession in life, declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly. No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they show amendment of life. This evening we conclude the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the sacraments, both 
baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is what the Catechism has been explaining to us over the last several Lord's Days and in treating these two sacraments, the Catechism followed the same pattern for each of them. First, starting with the meaning and the significance of each of the sacraments. Then, transitioning to the relationship between the elements and the reality to which they point. And then finally, answering the question, for whom did Christ institute each of these sacraments? And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we've already looked at the meaning and the significance. How it points us to Christ who is our spiritual meal who feeds and nourishes our hungry and thirsty souls. And then we looked at the relationship between the elements and the reality to which they point. And now we conclude by asking and answering the question, for whom did Christ institute the sacrament? And to help guide us in answering that question, we consider this Lord's Day using Matthew chapter 22 as our Scripture reading. And now in looking at this passage, it's good to admit that this passage by itself is not really about the Lord's Supper itself. This is one of the parables that Jesus told that has really as its main point how the Jews rejected the Gospel and rejected Jesus Christ. And because of that, the the Gospel was then given to the Gentiles. They are the ones who are summoned to the marriage feast. That's what's on the foreground in this parable in Matthew chapter 22. But yet there is still instruction for us regarding the Lord's Supper, specifically regarding who may come to the Lord's table. For embedded into the instruction in Matthew chapter 22 is instruction about the unworthy guests Those who may not come, who have no right to try to sit down at the table. Those who reject the call of the Gospel. And those who refuse the the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And by implication then, we are given instruction regarding the worthy partaker of this heavenly meat and drink that we are given in the Lord's Supper. It's the one who believes in Jesus Christ. It's the one who trusts entirely in Christ for His righteousness. That is the worthy partaker. And so this evening, let's consider Lord's Day 30 using as our theme, who may come to the Lord's table. First, we'll look at the call to the marriage feast. Second, we'll look at the unworthy guests. And third, the worthy partakers who may come to the Lord's table, the call to the marriage feast, the unworthy guests, and the worthy partakers. In looking at this particular passage in connection with Lord's Day 30, we are reminded by it that the Lord's Supper, excuse me, yeah, the Lord's Supper points us to the truth that Christ is our bridegroom, and we are His bride, and we have the expectation of one day enjoying a great marriage feast, a wedding banquet. Because that's what this passage is about. It reminds us of this truth that 
Christ is our bridegroom. For in verse 2, for example, we read this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And we understand the king here to be the triune God of heaven and earth. The son being his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And it speaks of him making a marriage for his son. Pointing to the truth that in eternity, God chose for his son a beloved bride, his elect people. And that in time, Jesus Christ came into this world to take his bride to himself so that we are betrothed to our beloved bridegroom. From a legal point of view, we are married to him and we wait the day that the marriage will be consummated, that we will live with him forever. So that in this passage, we have the same instruction that's found elsewhere in Scripture. Elsewhere, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, where we are given instruction concerning marriage. And in that passage, giving us instruction regarding the calling of husbands and the calling of wives, we're taught that really this relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the the perfect marriage between Christ and His bride, the church. So that we read in Ephesians 5, verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So that we learn that Jesus Christ is not only our mediator, He's not only our prophet, our priest, our king, not just our Lord and Savior, but He's also our bridegroom. And we are His bride. And as His bride, we have the expectation, the confident hope that we will get to enjoy a marriage feast. Even as that's described for us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. This is the outstanding passage that teaches us about the marriage feast. In the preceding context, we have the, the second coming of Jesus Christ and the overthrow of the anti Christian kingdom. And then the saints in heaven rejoicing with that fourfold hallelujah. And then in that context, we read in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And His wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen and fine linen clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And He saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. So this passage is telling us that when Christ comes again and we are brought into the joys of everlasting life, that we can understand that in terms of a marriage feast in which we will sit down with our Savior, with our Bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We'll enjoy a meal with Him. And more importantly, and more importantly we'll enjoy Him. Christ Himself. The fellowship and the the intimacy of the fullness of our salvation. So that on that day, we will no longer be merely His bride, but His wife will, will live with Him. And what a day of rejoicing that will be.
There's nothing in all the world that can, co- can possibly compare to the, the joy, the wonder of that day when Christ comes again on the clouds of heaven to take His bride to Himself to live with Him in the place that He has prepared for her. Congregation, do you long for that day? Are you excited about it? I trust every married couple here can remember the the excitement building up to your wedding day. There was the engagement period and all through that engagement period, you were counting down the the months, the weeks, the days until the day came. You were looking forward to it. You were excited about it. Shall we not be all the more excited for this marriage supper? For this heavenly banquet with Jesus Christ, our Bridegroom? It truly will be a day of rejoicing. And to encourage us in our hope and longing for that day, our God has given to us the Lord's Supper. For you see, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that marriage feast. And that comes out from the the various parallels between the Lord's Supper, and the the marriage feast that awaits. For example, in both of them, there is a table. The whole idea of the marriage feast is that we will be gathered together with Jesus Christ around a table. There will be a meal set before us. All the the riches of salvation, it will be a great banquet and we will enjoy fellowship, communion with our Savior. And all that's pictured in the Lord's Supper. For this piece of furniture up here is is a table, even though it it does not look like the tables we sit around. That's the point of it. It symbolizes the fact that we're gathering together for a meal in which we eat and drink Jesus Christ, in which we enjoy communion with Him. There are parallels here. And the parallels extend to those who are gathered at the table. And the, the great marriage feast that will be Christ and His bride, His elect body, His redeemed people. And at the table of the Lord's Supper, it's the same thing. Jesus Christ is beckoning us to that table. He's present in the elements as we saw in the previous Lord's Day. And we, His elect people, sit down there with Him. There's the parallel of the joy in both. And the great wedding feast that will be a truly joyous and festive occasion. And that's symbolized in the Lord's Supper in that we use wine. We do not use grape juice, but wine for Scripture itself speaks of the the gladness that wine makes the heart glad. There's joy in the Lord's Supper. So that what we see is that the Lord's Supper not only points us to, is a picture of the heavenly marriage supper, but really it's a foretaste of it. It's something to whet our appetites, to stir up within us a longing. It's a sampling, a preview of what is 
to come. And it's when we are mindful of this that we then recognize the wonder that Christ calls us to this supper. He bids us to come. And that's what really stands out in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, we see God calling us, beckoning us to come to the feast. So that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 3, for example, we read this, and He sent forth His servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Verse 4, and again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. And then again in verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. We understand that all these verses are referring to the call of the Gospel. The call of the Gospel that comes through the the preaching that we hear Sabbath day to Sabbath day. The call to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And specifically, this passage teaches us that that call to believe is a call to come to this wedding banquet, to this marriage supper. And what a thing that is. To have the great God, the King of heaven and earth, bid us to come. This is not something we are to take lightly. We should never have a dismissive attitude towards us. We should never come up with excuses. Well, it doesn't really work for me today because of this or because of that. This is the King saying, Come. This is a command so that it comes with a certain calling. There's an obligation here. But more than that, this is a privilege. He's bidding us to join Him at the marriage of His Son. And understand that to be a guest at this table is to be a part of the bride. The guests are the bride. So He calls us to come. That is, to believe in Jesus Christ. And by implication, this call to the wedding feast therefore includes a call to come to the Lord's table because of those parallels that we showed. Because the the one is really a foretaste of the other. So that there's a calling for the church here to administer the Lord's Supper. When Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, He made clear that the church was to continue to do this. He said, this do ye in remembrance of me as often as ye eat and often as ye drink. There's the expectation that the church must administer the sacrament. She must give it to the people. But there's a calling not only for the church. There's a calling for each one of us to come to the Lord's table. And that means for the confessing members of the church. We ought not to abstain ourselves willingly. But we are to partake of this sacrament. To be here when it is administered. 
For the baptized members, there's application. That is, those who are baptized but have not yet made confession of faith. In our church, we have the good practice of waiting to administer this sacrament to someone until they have made confession of their faith. And that means for the young people, the fact that Christ bids us to come, He calls us to come to the marriage feast means confess your faith. Profess it before the church and therefore, and thereby come to the Lord's table itself. There's a call to come to the Lord's table. This foretaste of the wedding feast. But even as that call is issued, there must be a warning given that there are some who may not come. That is, there are unworthy guests. In light of the teaching of Scripture and the Heidelberg Catechism, there are some who are not worthy. And those who are not worthy can be distinguished into two categories. First, though the unworthy guests are those who show by their lives that they are unbelieving and ungodly. That's what the Catechism teaches us in question and answer 82. Question 82 reads, are they also to be admitted to the supper who by confession in life, declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer is no. And as I've explained from this pulpit before, when we have a longer question in the Heidelberg Catechism, followed by a one-word initial answer, yes or no, that's telling us there's instruction for us in the question itself so that we look at the question and it's teaching us who may be admitted. Are they also to be admitted? And remember, the answer is going to be no, So it's telling us these people are not to be admitted. Those who by confession, that is what they profess to believe, and life, that is how they conduct themselves, how they behave, declare, that is they show, they manifest themselves unbelieving and ungodly. It's talking about those who are openly unbelieving and ungodly, who make clear from the way that they live and what they profess to believe that they are not truly God's people. Such individuals are not to come. And we see this in Matthew chapter 22. The unbelieving and the ungodly. For there were some who rejected the call of the Gospel in their unbelief. Verse 3, And He sent forth His servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. They rejected the call. And then again in verse 4, the king sends out additional messengers and they still refuse. Verse 4, again he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his farm, another to his merchandise. They came up with excuses. I have something more important to do. And in this, they were showing their unbelief. 
But not only do we see unbelief in Matthew chapter 22, we also see ungodliness. For there were those who took it a step further and attacked the very messengers of the Gospel. Verse 6, And the remnant took his servants, that is the king's servants, and entreated them spitefully and slew them. They showed their ungodliness by their, their wicked deed of murdering the messengers of the king. And now the key is that Matthew 22 itself tells us that these people are unworthy of being at this marriage feast. That's verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. The unbeliever and the ungodly is not worthy to come to the marriage feast, and therefore they are not worthy to come to the Lord's table. Which shows us at bottom that those who are unworthy are those who reject Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental point. For those, for these people in this passage to refuse to come was not just contempt toward the king, but it was contempt toward his son. It was a rejection of his son. We want nothing to do with your son. And that's really the whole point of the parable, its purpose in light of its historical context. For in the preceding context, we read of the Pharisees rejecting Jesus Christ. In chapter 21, verses 42 and following, we read this, Jesus saith unto them, the scribes and Pharisees, did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say, unto, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. He's talking about them and their rejection of him. So that this parable is designed to make that very point. Those who reject Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, are not worthy of coming to the marriage feast and thus coming to the Lord's table. So first you have those who show themselves to be ungodly and unbelievers. But there's a second category of unworthy guests. And that second category are those that consists of hypocrites who seek to stand in their own righteousness. And that comes out from question answer 81. Question 81, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? That is, who may come to the Lord's table? And the first half of the answer is the positive, and we'll come to that later on. But the second half is the negative, and that's our interest now where we read in the last couple lines, but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Hypocrites. The hypocrite is the one who makes an outward profession of faith, 
and from an external point of view, conducts himself in a way that makes him appear to be a Christian, but the reality is he does not believe in Jesus Christ. His Christianity is nothing more than a sham. He tries to blend in, but the reality is that he does not belong because he does not believe to Jesus Christ and look to Him for His righteousness. And that too is a part of Matthew chapter 22. For if we continue on in the parable, we read that guests are indeed brought in. Verse 10, So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. But now, when the king comes into the marriage feast, he finds one guest in particular that stands out. Verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. He's not clothed with the proper attire for the occasion. And the king confronts him. The king calls him out on this. He says to him in verse 12, And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And when the man does not have a good answer, the king throws him out. Verse 13, And then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And now when we read this, we wonder, what on earth is going on here? Why is this man thrown out of the wedding feast and really into outer darkness, that is, into hell itself? And the reason is, he was not clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Because this parable speaks of him not having on the right wedding garment. And we ask, well, what's the right attire for the occasion? Well, it's the righteousness of Christ. That's what we were taught in Matthew, in Revelation chapter 19. We read that passage earlier. And when we're given the description of the bride as she's coming to the, the marriage supper, we read this in verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And importantly, the righteousness of saints there does not mean the righteousness of the saints themselves, their own good works, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to the saints by faith. So that the wedding garment is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now when we have that in view, we understand why this man is thrown out. Because he dared to come, trusting not in his own right, trusting not in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but trusting instead in his own righteousness. So that this man is an example of the hypocrite. He did not openly reject the call of the gospel, he tried to come and to sort of blend in with the crowd. But he did not look to Christ for his righteousness. He supposed that what he had to bring, what he had to offer was enough. 
But the reality is that that made him an unworthy guest. So that again, at bottom, the unworthy guest is the one who rejects Jesus Christ. Whether it's openly with a life of unbelief and ungodliness, or whether it's as a hypocrite, both are rejecting Jesus Christ, and therefore neither of them are worthy to come. And therefore, such unworthy guests must not come or be permitted to come because of the dreadful consequences in coming as an unworthy guest. There's dreadful consequences for the unworthy themselves. That's clear from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, which says that those who eat and drink unworthily eat and drink damnation to themselves. That is, it's a sin for them to partake of the Lord's Supper And therefore, they're only adding to their judgment that they deserve. And is that not clearly seen in Matthew 22? What happens to the man who tries to come in his own righteousness? He's cast into outer darkness. And such a punishment is not too severe. When we, when we remember that He was cast out because He rejected the Son. But now not only are there consequences for the unworthy who try to come, there's consequences for the church that knowingly allows the unworthy to come. And that's what the Catechism teaches us, especially in question and answer 82. Are they also be, to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly. Notice that word, admitted, so that it's the church in view. Who's, who are they going to allow to come? And the answer is no. And then we read this, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and His wrath kindled against the whole congregation. When the church knows that someone's life does not comport with the life of the child of God, that they're walking impenitently in a particular sin, if the church allows that person to come, what well, results in a, a desecration of the, the sacrament. The sacrament is being polluted and therefore God's wrath is kindled not just against the individual, but against the church. So that there's an important calling for us. An important calling for the church to guard the table. Against such unworthy guests, excluding certain persons as we're taught in answer 82. Picking up where we left off the second line, therefore it is the duty of the Christian church according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they show amendment of life. The church has the calling to exclude certain individuals from partaking of the Lord's Supper. And it's for that reason that as a church, we do not practice open communion. Open communion is the idea that anyone and everyone who walks through the doors of the church on a Sunday morning when the Lord's Supper is being administered, that they're allowed to partake regardless of their background, regardless of what's going on in their lives. That's not our practice in light of this teaching. 
But instead, we practice close communion. That is, it's reserved for those that the elders of the church, the leaders of the church are confident, believe in Jesus Christ, and look to Him for their righteousness. And that's why the church requires a profession of faith in order to be admitted to the Lord's table. So there's the exclusion of some. And that exclusion includes those whom the church knows to be walking impenitently in sin. This is the first step of Christian discipline. If there are members of the church who have made such a profession of faith, but yet their lives are inconsistent with that profession of faith, then the first step of Christian discipline is to bar them from the Lord's table to say to them, you may not partake until you show amendment of life. But now even with that, this practice does not guarantee that no unworthy guests will come. Because the church, because this, uh, this calling applies to those whom the office bears can see are unbelieving or ungodly. But the reality is that as office bears, we cannot see the heart. And really, as office bears, there's the calling to give the judgment of charity. And it's in light of that there, that there also has to be a word for the hypocrite. Calling for the church to fence the table, but then the word to the hypocrite. Do not come to the Lord's table. That is, insofar as there are any here who do not believe in Jesus Christ, you may not come. If you suppose that the reason you may come is on account of your own good works, your own repentance, your own faith, if you think that it's because you've somehow earned God's favor by anything that you've done, do not come. That is, do not come until after you first believe. Because that really is the fundamental call to the hypocrite in the church. That's the call of the Gospel here. In Matthew chapter 22, believe in Jesus Christ. And believe in Him recognizing that every one of us must one day stand before this great King. And if we try to stand before Him clothed in our own righteousness, we too will stand there speechless when He confronts us. And we too will be cast into outer darkness. Do not let that be you. But instead, believe. Trust in Jesus Christ. And as those who do believe, you may be sure 
that you will be received at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's those who believe that are the worthy partakers. We've been asking the question, who may come to the table of the Lord? Who may partake of this foretaste of the great marriage feast? And the worthy partakers are those who by faith recognize their own unworthiness to come and trust instead in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And that positive truth is is clearly implied from the negative in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, the emphasis is on the negative. Who may not come? In the first category of who may not come are those who reject the call of the Gospel. The, the king bids them to come and they say, no, thank you. And then it moves to those who do not trust in Jesus Christ for their own, do not trust in Jesus Christ as their righteousness who try to stand there and they're clothed in their own good works and those are thrown out. And now when you flip that around and look at the positive, the positive then is those who may come are those who heed the call of the Gospel, who believe in Jesus Christ and trust in Him for their righteousness. Which always and necessarily involves recognizing our own unworthiness before God. So that if we ask the question, who may come? It's the individual who says, of myself I am not worthy. Because I am a sinner. Not just... I do sinful things. I am a sinner. I have this old man of sin that clings to me that out of which arise all these sinful thoughts, all these sinful words, all these sinful desires. And as for my works, well, even my best works are, are tainted with sin. They have sin clinging to them so that I can, cannot even present my works before this king. I am unworthy in myself. But at the same time, I trust in Jesus Christ. Looking away from myself and looking to Him. Both for the forgiveness of my sins that I've committed, but then also for that spotless, perfect righteousness that measures up to God's perfect standard, to His law. It's those who abandon any attempts to earn their way by their own works, but instead trust entirely in Jesus Christ. Those who recognize Christ alone is worthy. And it's only as one who is in Jesus Christ that I may come. That individual is the worthy partaker. And that's what the catechism is getting at at the beginning of question and answer 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And the positive is this. For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. Who acknowledge I am a sinner and who are sorry for those sins. But then it goes on to say, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ. And that their remaining infirmities are covered by His passion and death. So that It's the child of God who believes in Jesus Christ and looks to Him for His righteousness. But then more than that, out of gratitude for that salvation, seeks to live a new and godly life. For the catechism continues 
and who earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. And I trust you recognize that question and answer 81 is following the exact same sequence that's found in the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper in the the section on preparation, which begins with the knowledge of our sin. And then transitions to the knowledge that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And then finally to leading a new and godly life so that in both cases it's sin, it's salvation, and then service. And then standing behind all of that is faith in Jesus Christ. That individual is a worthy partaker. Is that you? Is that me? If so, then come. Christ bids you, child of God, to sit down at His table. Come so that your faith might be strengthened. At times it's weak. We need to be built up. Come so that you might have that assurance. Come so that you might partake of this foretaste of the far greater feast that awaits us. The the wedding banquet. Where we will enjoy perfect fellowship with our Savior in all of the riches of salvation. Where we will live with our bridegroom, with our husband for all eternity. When we will no longer need the foretaste because we will have the reality. Come to the Lord's table. to strengthen your longing for that day so that our hope is not on the things here below, not on this life, but is fixed firmly on the day of Christ's return. May God use this sacrament to stir up within us an ever greater longing for that day. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the means of grace, for the preaching of the Gospel and for the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we pray that Thou will ever use them to strengthen our faith and to direct us again and again to our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in His name alone that we pray all these things confident that thou wilt hear us for his sake. Amen.